what's ghost surgery? And how do we make sure we don't end up being one? Stay tuned as we learn how to do better research on making sure we've selected the right hospital for those that we love. Welcome to Doing It Best with Elder Care Success, where we explore ways to relieve the stress, exhaustion, and overwhelm that we all face in caring for an aging parent, frail spouse, or partner. Fear, frustration, emotional and financial strain does not have to be your M.O. Stay tuned as we dive into different and new ways of finding more joy together with those that we love and care for and while keeping our feet solid on the ground. Hang tight. There is a better road ahead. Hey, everybody. It's Nancy May from Doing It Best with Elder Care Success. And this is part two of a very fascinating discussion with Dan Frith who is a practicing lawyer in the state of Virginia and limits his practice to litigation and medical negligent cases and wrongful wrong excuse me and wrongful death litigation that's a mouthful hey everybody this is Nancy May from doing it best with elder care success and this is part 2 of a very special show on how to select a doctor for somebody that you love, as well as a hospital. In this part, we're talking about hospitals and specialists in the hospital field. This is important as caregivers because sometimes things get a little complicated and we really need to know that we've got the best people working for those that we love. My guest, as in part one, is Dan Frith, who is a practicing lawyer in Virginia and limits his practice to litigation and medical negligence cases, as well as wrongful death litigation. Dan is the expert to the experts. He's also currently an active member of the American Association for Justice. What I find fascinating about Dan, just just so that you quickly know before we jump into this episode, is that you have to know that most lawyers, when they're dealing with litigation, or a large percentage of them, will actually prefer to represent the corporation, meaning the hospital or the healthcare provider, and not those of us who are taking care of somebody. That is because the corporation typically provides a continuing stream of revenue to the law firms. So it's incredible when you have somebody who is so focused on patient care and families and doing what's right. And that's our guest today, Dan Frith. So we talked about the whole process of really sort of identifying a doctor. This is regarding a GP, the basics. Now let's get into hospitals and specialists because typically we have our general practitioner. That's the one that everybody has to talk to, that everybody's supposed to, you know, everybody's supposed to go through that one so that you can get approval for surgery, so you can get approval to talk to the cardiologist, to the podiatrist, to the list goes on. How the general practitioner actually manages all that, I really don't know. And I don't think they, I don't say they don't care because, you know, you want it they'll you could probably go to sign off on it and say, yeah, sure, talk to, to Dr. Smith, that's fine. But unless they think there's something's absolutely horribly wrong with Dr. Smith. But how does this process work? And how do we even trust that our primary care physician is pointing us in the right direction when we need those specialists? Finding a specialist and finding a great hospital that treats your medical need that's a difficult process or can be a difficult process. And it's a process in which additional levels of education, additional time spent by the patient is needed to find what you really need in terms of medical care. And let's talk about specialists for a little bit. And it may not be in your backyard, correct? Exactly. That is very true. If you live in a large urban area, 
you have many more resources available to you with regard to specialists. You live in a rural area, you're not going to have that. And if it is a potentially life-threatening surgery or problem, if you live in a rural area, it behooves you and your family that you not limit your search for the appropriate specialist to where you live. You may need to get in a car. You may need to go someplace else to get good care. Unless you're looking for a doctor of veterinary medicine. And there you go. Exactly. <laughs> but I'll, I'll give you a couple of examples on specialists that, that, that I have seen occur, arise in, in, for clients that I've worked for. Everybody's familiar with the importance of a colonoscopy. Yep. Uh, the, the procedure where a flexible tube with the cameras inserted to look for inflammation or polyps in the large intestine. Well, that procedure can either be a screening colonoscopy where certain uh, cancer organizations recommended at age 50, age 60, age 70, or it can be a diagnostic uh, colonoscopy where they've already identified some sort of problem. Maybe it's bleeding, maybe it's abdominal pain, who knows. But here's one very important procedure it, it could it could save your life if it's done appropriately and if it, if it discloses cancer. But a general surgeon can perform a colonoscopy or a gastroenterologist can perform really? a, a colonoscopy. Yes. And, you know, the, the gastroenterologist has received additional training and study in issues involving the colon and the bowel and diseases and that sort of thing. The surgeon does hernia repairs. He removes appendixes, and that surgeon, a general surgeon, I, at least one that I'm familiar with, maybe does um, five to ten colonoscopies a year. Mm. The gastroenterologist who practiced an hour away from this surgeon probably does 20 a month. So you want somebody, as a specialist, you want someone who does whatever procedure they're recommending to you uh, multiple times a month, not multiple times a year. You need that experience. Experience counts, and it counts greatly when you're talking about a specialist, not a general practitioner, not a family care doctor. They're, they're, the nature of their practice is they see everything, and they're sort of the first line of defense, and they refer you on. But when you get down to needing a specialist, you need people with lots of experience doing the procedure at issue. The other procedure that I have seen, and again, it, 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 I'm not trying to throw general surgeons under the bus, but there's a procedure called an adrenalectomy. And that's when uh, someone removes, a surgeon removes all or a portion of an adrenal gland. Now, the adrenal glands sit on both sides of your body over top of your kidneys. And the function of the adrenal glands is to produce hormones to, uh, which regulate metabolism. It has an effect on your blood pressure, and it can have an effect on your immune system. Now, there is a division of surgery called endocrine surgery, E-N-D-O-C-R-I-N-E. Endocrine surgeries spend almost all day, every day, if it's their surgery day, doing adrenalectomies. General surgeons probably do five to ten a year. Who do you want removing your adrenal glands, all or a portion of it? We've just, we've just seen a situation in which a general surgeon removed, uh, was going to remove uh, what turned out to be a benign tumor from an adrenal gland, and that surgeon transected the ureter underneath the kidney. Now, how in the world they got Ooh. in the wrong part of the anatomy, I don't know, but I have a feeling it's based upon the fact that 
they didn't have the experience and the expertise and the training to be doing that. Yet, by law, they can. When you go, like, I'm not a doctor, but I would imagine you go into the body cavity and you see things, but not everything's laid out so neat and pretty, you know, from person to person. And we're all a little different. You've got somebody who's large and obese. You've got to get through layers of, of fat and skin in order to get to there. And there may be other things that are hiding the organs in such a way that you may not necessarily be feeling familiar with. And it looks different from person to person. So you, mistakes happen because you're not familiar with how the body might change internally from uh, based on different conditions or there are other issues going on. So I would imagine that that also comes into play. But I agree, you know, ooh, specialist, that's kind of scary. So when do you need a general surgeon? Well, you know, general surgeons to remove an appendix to fix um, either an umbilical hernia. Um, but even there, I had my my gallbladder out. It was a gallbladder specialist yeah. who was brought in and, and moved from the hospital from New York. She wanted to come out to the more rural areas for family life. You know, I get it because I, I checked that one out <laughs> at the time. He's like, why are you here? You left New York. Well, you know. You, you, but, but the thing that is unfortunate is most people, for example, don't know that there are endocrine surgeons. So if they're having issues that may indicate they've got an adrenal gland problem that's first picked up by a primary care physician or a general practitioner, that physician will refer that patient on to a general surgeon because that family practitioner or general practitioner may not have ever sent anyone to an endocrine surgeon, may not even, I mean, they know of the existence of endocrine surgeons, but may have no relationship with them. So do your homework. If you've got a specialty or a special issue, I probably would never consider having a general surgeon addressing a heart issue. I mean, we have cardiologists, cardiac surgeons, and we had that with my dad. And I knew there was the cardiologist, but he brought in a cardiac surgeon specialist to address my dad's situation. And he explained the whole line yard saying we could go this way or that way. He said, but this is the specialist in this particular type of issue that your father has. This is why I recommend we go with him. And so I put faith in a, in a very short period of time in the individual because of the expertise and the focus on that one issue. And I ask questions like, you know, how many times have you done this? What happens? What's the result? What's the, what's the chance of of death, you know, on the table. What are what are the outcomes? How long does it take to recover based on age? We talked about even uh, anesthesia issues that, you know, what comes into play on on how to do that. So it's not just the surgeon or the specialist, but it's everybody that interplays or interacts with that individual as well, correct? Correct. Those are great questions. You mentioned about asking, for example, we're dealing a lot with surgeons here, but asking that surgeon uh, how many times have you performed this procedure or how many times a month or whatever? That's an important question. And then the next question that you just mentioned, what have been your complications from this procedure? That's a scary question to ask, right? The last thing you want to hear is say, well, I've got a, you know, a, a 50-50 ratio. <laughs> but what, but you have to listen very carefully to what they tell you. If you ask that question, um, what's your complication rate? Sometimes they will answer, well, the, the literature says that the complication rate is 2%. I don't want to know what the, what, what is your, right? Exactly. I don't know what, I don't want to know what the literature is or based on projections exactly. or, or estimates of somebody of this age and this health is like, no, I want to hear like you, yes. how many times have you dealt with a 90 year old, you know, man, how many times has this happened? What are the outcomes and, and talk to others that, 
that have gone through this as well. So exactly. I'm hundred percent on board with that. You hit the nail on the head. Yeah. And I don't care if the doctor is kind and sweet and lovely and, you know, chit chatty with me. Tell me black and white. Yes. No ups, downs. What's the worst case scenario? What's the best case and everything in between. Because the worst case is the worst, but then there's like the 75% worst case. <laughs> you also want to know, because that could be you or somebody else that you know. You know, and, and again, back to surgery issue, you may also want to ask artificial knee replacements and hip replacements are big deals now. And, and in many ways, they have prolonged, not the life necessarily, but the enjoyable life of many people. They get to return to playing tennis or running or whatever they're doing. When you're faced with a, a joint replacement surgery, ask that physician what their post-operative infection rate is. Good question. Good question, right? Or because how long does it take for the average person to recover that you've worked with? And George, I'm going to have to have a knee replacement at some point, a bad car accident. So it, it was going to happen at some at one point in my life, but I'm holding off as much as possible. And you know, what are the other things you can do? Well, you know, I dropped 20 pounds. So that helped helped a lot. It's it wasn't easy to do, but I but I did it. And the other thing with joint replacements, now this has changed over the years. And again, please caveat, I am not an expert. I'm not a medical professional and neither is Dan a medical professional, but you, you're probably more expert on this than I am based on your years of experience working with doctors, is that over the years, the size of joints have changed based on gender. And they can now, they've actually focused on making them so that like in, in years past, when my dad first had his hips, done and replaced they made them all you know certain sizes but they were all designed for men and not women you know so there were issues in the knee area for a lot of women who had larger joints i mean this is this is a uh, this is an amputation as i mean serious as, as hard as you want to look at it but that it is it's an amputation and a replacement with a prosthetic device period end of story understand it that and think about it that way so that's that's important Agreed. If you're doing things like that, we're talking about specialists. If there are going to be devices implanted, I, I guess we should ask that in fr up front too. What kind of devices are being used and implanted in my body being a stent or something else? Because there have been recalls on stents and it's kind of hard to say, you know, can we have that back? <laughs> <laughs> hard to do, isn't it? Yeah. With medical devices, I mean, that's a whole different avenue of where medicine has gone. Sometimes the Food and Drug Administration gets criticized for how slow they move sometimes to approve certain medications and prosthetic devices and that sort of thing. I kind of err on the side of, of, of going slow and, and being careful. Lots of times you'll see medications and devices approved in Europe or Canada before they're approved in the United States, same manufacturer. They just the process is quicker there. Yep. It could be it could be bureaucratic malaise in the United States, or it could be they're just more careful about what they will approve. Well, you know that's probably not a bad thing, but still, you know, if if in fact a device that is going to be implanted in your body or or somebody that you love's body, get the name of the manufacturer, get the name of the device, check it out, do your research online. If it's being used in Europe successfully, find out what the history is of success or lack thereof in that case, because that information is available. You should be, it may take a little digging, but all you need to do is ask, but go to Go to Google and um, I think it's Google MD or, or Google. I'll find I'll find out the correct link 
and I'll put it in the show notes because you can actually go into research and documents and to your heart's content and, and really go down, down a rabbit hole. But all you need is like a couple of pieces of, of information to start the conversation so that you are more comfortable and you're, you're not afraid or not worried that the device could cause more harm than good. And that's, that's important to, to know about. Let's get into the hospital because we talked about rural hospitals versus other hospitals. But as I understand, especially over the years, I've had friends and, and family members who've had children, especially, who have had rare or what they call orphan diseases. Now, we're, our audience is we're dealing with elder care and, and more senior market. But the amount of research that a parent goes in to take care of a child who has an orphan or a rare disease is amazing. And why we don't do that for our parents, I'm not exactly sure. Well, you know, I you know, I guess the the concern of a of a death, a potential death of a child, is more horrific than the death of a parent who may have lived a, a, a good life. But even still, the end is the end, and and I want to make it as long as possible so I can continue to contribute to the world, right? I'm with you on that. But they go to extreme measures of actually finding hospitals that specialize in particular issues. The same should be true in elder care related issues to correct or or not. Correct. And I, and I mentioned it uh, previously, while I'm not a huge fan of some of the websites that rate physicians and healthcare providers, there is a site uh, maintained by U.S. News. It used to be, I guess, U.S. News and World Report, but they dropped the end of that. I have found that they do a pretty good job of rating hospitals based upon particular areas of practice, be it neurosurgery, back surgery, uh, joint replacements, that sort of thing. And you can, it's a very user-friendly website. You can go in there, put your zip code in and either describe the condition you're looking for or, or possibly the procedure you're looking for. And it will bring up hospitals that are closer to you, let's say within 100 miles, that have a good reputation for treating patients with that problem. And, it, and, and hospitals do have reputations for certain areas. For example, Johns Hopkins in, in Baltimore, tremendous, tremendous, tremendous department in pancreatic surgery. Just unbelievably skilled, involved team there that deals with patients dealing with a very horrible form of cancer. And you, you can find hospitals like Hopkins with those reputations by going with U.S. News. The only other way you can really find out who's doing really good work is probably to talk with your specialist. Let's say your specialist says, well, Nancy, I think you need to, you've got a complicated uh, knee injury from an automobile accident years ago, and, and your uh, knee replacement surgery is not going to be like the routine. I would ask that doctor, where would you go? Where would you go if you had need for a highly skilled uh, orthopedic surgeon who is uh, uh, extremely experienced in joint replacements and because I want to talk to that person. I want to go to that facility. If I can't talk to that person, I want to get to that department that supposedly has a great reputation for dealing with complicated knee joints. Duke University is one of them. I'll tell you that. Duke University has a tremendous orthopedic department and they have just started recently a combined orthopedic surgery slash joint replacement and infectious disease department. And all they do is treat knee replacement patients across this country who've developed post-operative infections. That's all they do. And they're very good at it. Wow. 
the post-op can kill you too, not just the surgery. So that's important to understand how that, how that happens. You look at hospitals that are specialists in those areas, like the Hospital for Special Surgery is known as the joint replacement. And somebody, a friend of mine is on, was one of the founding members of the Board of Trustees there. And he's a terrific fellow and an attorney and also was recommending a friend. We had this conversation to get his hip or a knee replacement. And the guy said, I'm not going there. And he said, why? He said, because if I have a heart issue, they understand knees and joints. They don't understand hearts. So I'm, I'm going to go to a place that specializes in, in a particular area that I need. But <laughs> FYI, make sure that if there are other complications that could happen based on age or something else, that you're comfortable that that facility is able to take care of everything, which, you know, I guess they also have a question on these um, surgical centers now that have cropped up over the years. They're not, they're not in the hospital, but they could be, there was one by us, it was, a, it was an old tech warehouse that turned into a surgical facility. And, and that's all they do is like meniscus and knees and other things and ankles. And I guess that's fine. But, but what happens if, if there's a complication, right? Yeah. You know, you can, I will opt out of the surgery centers. If everything goes fine, it's a wonderful place and more convenient to have a procedure done than a hospital OR. But um, lots of times their staff is not trained up to the level of hospital operating rooms. They're anesthesiologists. They may have what's called a CRNA, Certified Registered Nurse Anesthetist Providing Anesthesia. You get a complication with anesthesia at one of these surgical centers, you may not make it to the hospital where you get to see real anesthesiologists deal with your problem. So that, that's a scary, scary thing. That, yeah. I mean, you don't know. That's, that was a Joan Rivers case, I think. In, in it Chicago, was, right? exactly. Yes. So, oof. what I am trying to think of some other questions because now, like, my head is exploding with other <laughs> questions. On you've got the doctor, you've got the surgeon, you've got the specialist, you've got a date that you're going to get something done, but you don't necessarily know all the other specialists that are going to be there overseeing you, your your breathing, your ability to get up and and leave eventually. You don't know who else is going to be invited to the party. Yeah, either. exactly. So. Are the surgeons in the hospitals comfortable sharing that information? Here's who shows up at your surgery most times. If the, the surgeon that you've talked with and believe uh, believe will be doing the surgery. and Because that's not always the case. They could be the specialist yeah. and they're overseeing somebody else doing it. ghost surgery. And it happens more than people yeah. understand. Since we've been using knee surgery a lot, uh, let, let's talk about who might be in that room for the knee surgery. The orthopedic surgeon that you believe is going to do the work, the person you place your trust in and your health, that person will be there. Possibly a resident will be there. That resident could be a first-year resident with very little knowledge or a fifth-year resident with a fair amount of knowledge and a fair amount of experience. You may also have a device manufacturer rep in the room who is answering questions that the surgeon has if the surgeon encounters any problems with the medical device. That's a good thing. Uh, sometimes those uh, medical device representatives in the OR have uh, more knowledge than the surgeon about particular issues and adaptabilities of certain devices. So that's a good thing. You'll have somebody put you to sleep. Either an anesthesiologist puts you to sleep. An anesthesiologist is a medical doctor trained in anesthesia issues. Anesthesia, the practice of anesthesia is basically to get you as close to death as 
they can get you and then bring you back to life. Oh, I've never heard it put that way. That that kind of freaks me yeah, out. It, it should. And sometimes in busy uh, OR settings, uh, you may have uh, six or seven OR suites going at one time. You may only have one anesthesiologist, one doctor anesthesiologist present in each of those separate rooms is being staffed by a certified registered nurse anesthetist. Now, Ooh. some of them are good, but none of them have the experience and training that an anesthesiologist does. If you want to make sure that for your surgery, you have an anesthesiologist, ask your surgeon, who is going to put me under? Who's going to put me to sleep? I don't want a certified nurse respiratory, a registered nurse anesthesiologist. I want Dr. Joe Brown to be there. To be there the entire time, the, you know, the 45 minutes to three hours or six hours, whatever the case might be, right? The, whole, the entire time. Correct. Whoa. And what's the role of those junior doctors, the residents and the interns? Sometimes the young, young physicians who are in their, either their internship or first year, or maybe second year residency, they may be only there to watch possibly hand the surgeon scalpel devices, medical devices, retractors. Yeah. As they get a little bit more experience, the surgeons allow them to have to practice on you. Basically the initial level is that they're going to open that knee since we're talking about knee or shoulder, that shoulder area and retract all of the muscle and tendons and ligaments, and then step back and watch the surgeon do the actual procedure and then close the patient back up with sutures afterwards. Can you ask if somebody's going to be doing that? Is it appropriate? I guess it is. It's your body or somebody else's body. It is. If that's going to be the case, how many times has this intern done this? And I don't want to be patient number one. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's appropriate. And if you go- But patient number B, the one, the guy that doesn't ask, right? Exactly. I'm an informed consumer of medical care. I want the answer to my question. Correct. (laughs) They call that ghost surgery and um, surgeons will tell you, hey, that's how I trained. I wouldn't know how to do Nancy's appendix removal had I not been allowed to assist the surgeon I trained under 20 years ago. So that's their comeback. And we understand that. I think that's fine to a certain extent, as long as there is the true, I call them the genius expert. I want, I don't want just the expert. I want the genius <laughs> there just in case that is going to be able to quickly jump in and, and save my life. So I don't, I don't become the ghost instead. You want the doctor who graduated from the top of her class. Right. So one other question, here's another one. The story of the joke is you know, what do they call a doctor who graduates at the top of the class versus the bottom of the class and, the, and it's still doctor? <laughs> Can you get your doctor's GP? I mean, how do you find out whether that guy was the, the one who skirted by on the, you know, the D student versus the A plus? And A plus doesn't guarantee that they're going to be good at what they do. I get it because application of knowledge is, is another level of expertise as opposed to book knowledge and passing the exams. There's no way to uh, access or uh, that they, any physician would tell you what their grade point average was or where they graduated in their class. I mean, one of the things, you don't want a doctor who graduated from medical school at the Grenada School of Medicine and Taxidermy. You don't want that guy. <laughs> <laughs> or, or practice on the cow or the donkey next door first, right? right yeah, right, right. exactly. That gets me off onto a side issue now with, with surgery issues. Uh, you see so many hospitals marking themselves that they do robotic surgery. And, ooh, you know, 
robotic surgery. It's the yeah, but you know, robotics you you don't have the same feel as if you're doing it by hand. And I I understand the the micro surgery that goes on into robotics, like cyber knife. Yeah, yeah. That was big up in New Haven. You know, the cyber knife signs. Like, what is a cyber knife? I mean, please tell me what's going on. Like, and if you if you're I don't get if it. If your surgeon who's going to do robotic has proposed robotic surgery for you is over the age of let's say 45 don't do it he or she was not trained on robotic surgery they went to a weekend long seminar operating on pigs in between rum drinks in cancun learning how to use the robot younger surgeons are being trained now in the residency and uh, internship programs and fellowship programs but Folks that came through the system before then, they learned how to do this by going to a two or three day seminar. It's a game for them. It's a 3D game. It's, I don't want to say game is a surgery, but but I, I get it. There's so much that we're going on here and there's so much to understand, but I'm, I'm going to give a quick little summary here and please add extra points into here as, as you go forward. First of all, when it comes to a specialist, make sure you've got a specialist who is focused on that particular kind of surgery or whatever it is that you need, that you ask them the right questions, not just how many of you've done, but what has your outcome been? What has not statistically in general across the board, this is what statistics say, but what has you, Mr. General, Ms. General Surgeon, what have your outcomes been? And when there are complications, what were the results of those complications? Did it result in death? Or was it a long recovery that ultimately the person got better? So ask those detailed questions. They may be uncomfortable for you to ask, but ask them, correct? Correct. The only thing I was going to say too, uh, when you're talking with that doctor and you're asking about their experience doing the procedure, how many times and what complications and how frequently the complications, ask them where do they, where do they send their patients when they encounter that complication? Ooh. When they remove the gallbladder and they injure the common bile duct, is there a specially trained hepatico-biliary surgeon at this facility who will jump in and save my life by correcting that complication that occurred during your surgery? Many times facilities, uh, I know an HCA facility that did not have any hepatico-biliary surgeons. So if a general surgeon screwed up a lap coli, moving the gallbladder, then they had to stabilize that patient and put them on an air uh, helicopter or an ambulance and send them to another facility where they did have a specially trained surgeon to make the repairs. I've got a friend or um, uh, the daughter of a friend who's going through that right now that went through uh, some surgery that was supposed to be fairly simple and, and, and unexpected, but has resulted in complications because there was a, I call it an oops, and to keep the, the information private. But now it's becoming a long two weeks in the hospital. Uh, and they're still not 100% sure as to why she's not recovering quickly. So that's a concern. And there wasn't a specialist, as I understand, there could have been that jumped in to, to fix the situation. But there was, a, there was a, an issue that along the way, I mean, stuff happens. We get it. Yeah, get we just don't want to happen to us or somebody <laughs> that's in our family. Like, let it happen to, to somebody else. So that's that. If you have any concerns about the hospital, the hospital's ability and what sort of support team they have, ask questions, get the reports, do your homework, bring your research before you have the work done to the doctor, to the hospital, to the experts of the hospital and have those conversations with them. My other, my other comment is you really get really totally pissed off and something's going on when you're there, go right into the administration office 
and ask for the general counsel. You will get a reply immediately. <laughs> Believe me, it works. Been there, done that. <laughs> so stay with your loved one when they're in the hospital setting. Take you a notepad and record everything at all times. Record right down everything. Everything. Yeah. Don't let them be alone. Things happen in the middle of the night. And you'd be surprised just, just by sitting there quietly, what observe, even the quality of care that they get or not. There was a report that I heard about recently. I'm going to do some more work on this and, and post it somewhere where the x-ray technicians who were actually reading, reading the material or the x-rays, the, the reports and telling the doctors, you know, what was the outcome of this? They, they actually had a better result in accuracy if there was a photograph of the patient with those Interesting. images Interesting. versus not the accuracy increased something like an, another 40%. It was, re, it was ridiculous. So I want to try an experiment and just to tell everybody next time you or somebody else you love is in the hospital, they see you. I mean, you're laying there, but wouldn't it be interesting if you put on the front door of your room, a picture of yourself when you were healthy and a picture of yourself now and see if you get a different reaction to the quality of care. Try your own experiment at home. So that's from the hospitals. If you don't, if the hospital close by you is not, has an expertise in your area and in the field that you need or the surgery that you need, find out where the next best place is and go there. It's okay. You don't need to be 20 miles away. You can be three states away, but go there. And then ask questions. I mean, question, question, question. Get all your answers put together, document them, give the answers back to the doctor and says, is, is this correct to make sure you've got them right? And then when you're ready, move forward. So sometimes this happens in a short period of time, be ready to hyperventilate, move fast, but do it. Correct? Correct. 100%. Are there any sort of closing words that you would have for us, Dan, that you would say, you know, how to avoid death at all costs when you're talking to a surgeon <laughs> or a hospital? Oh, I, I wish I had that uh, one piece of advice, but I would tell your listeners this. Be proactive, watch out, listen, ask questions, document. Don't be intimidated by the process. Do not be intimidated by the physicians. Uh, I've seen some physicians do some of the dumbest things in the world. So make sure that you're, you go into these situations with your eyes wide open and hopefully things will turn out okay. In the end, ultimately, you don't want to have to litigate. No. And two, you do not want to be concerned about a wrongful death. The, the um, best malpractice case in the world means somebody died or someone lost vision or an arm or a leg or is wheelchair bound the rest of their life. You don't want that. So we love you, Dan, but we don't want you. <laughs> Understood. Understood. Thanks again. It's been great to have you on the show. I really appreciate it. And if you need to talk to an expert, we'll have his information available for in the show notes as well. Take care. Enjoy it, Nancy. Bye-bye. Thanks. Bye-bye. This show is sponsored by Caremanity, the publishers of How to Survive 911 Medical Emergencies, a step-by-step -step guide before, during, and after. For your own personalized free file of life, go to www.howtosurvive911.com 
All trademarks, brands, and comments are not intended to be substitutes for medical, financial, or legal advice. Please consult a medical, legal, or financial professional for issues relevant to your own personal situation. This show is produced by Caremanity LLC. All rights reserved. Copyright Caremanity LLC.